Tonight marks the 13th anniversary of my pastorate here at Calvary South Austin. And what better time than this to spend the evening readjusting our focus on the vision that the Lord has given me for this fellowship of faith. And with this as our focus, I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. If you would, let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. And as you make your way to the 28th chapter of Matthew's gospel account, I want to take a moment to consider the eye, the eye charts that uh, optometrists use in order to test the vision of their patients. The most classic example of an eye chart is actually called the Snellen eye chart, which is not to be confused with the Smellen eye chart. It's a totally different thing. The Snellen eye chart was actually developed by a Dutch eye doctor named Herman Snellen. He developed this during the middle of the 19th century. And just to make sure that we're all on the same page here, the Snellen eye chart includes 11 rows of capital letters. The top row typically contains one huge capital E. And then that's followed by a second line, which usually includes the letters F and P. And then the next nine lines contain all capital letters, which continue to get progressively smaller and smaller as more and more letters are added to each line until you can't see anything anymore. You might not know this, but uh, this test helps uh, optometrists to determine uh, whether someone has 20-20 vision or not. And and the phrase 20-20 vision, well, it's based on this eye chart test. Simply put, uh, the person with 20-20 vision is able to stand 20 feet away from this eye chart and easily read the row of letters that appears on the eighth line of the chart. According to one expert, 35% of Americans have 20-20 vision, which they call normal vision, which doesn't seem normal to me if only 35% of Americans have this vision. So, but it, regardless of all of that, you know, 20-20 vision is supposed to be the normal vision. 35% of Americans have this normal vision, which is to say that, that those of us with 20-20 vision have no problem reading from the eighth line of that eye chart from 20 feet away. And as for the rest of us, though, well, the optometrist uses this eye chart in order to diagnose the ocular issues of their patients. For example, if the letters on the fourth line of this chart start becoming blurry at 20 feet, then the eye doctor is able to determine that you might have 20-40 vision, which is simply to say that you need to be as close as 20 feet in order to see what a person with normal vision can see at 40 feet away. Or maybe you're someone who struggles to see the largest letter there on the first line of this chart, and if so, then you're what the experts would call legally blind. As we consider the importance of using the Snellen chart in order to test the sharpness of our physical vision, I believe that we would also do well to use the Bible in order to test the sharpness of our spiritual vision. Much like that first huge big letter that's found on the first line of the Snellen chart, I believe that we find the equivalent of of that letter here in Matthew chapter 28. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting his disciples with the big picture. He's presenting them with, 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 the, with, the, with the primary focus, which we call the Great Commission. And with this is our focus. If you would look with me here at Matthew 28, beginning at verse 18. Here Matthew tells us that Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now here in these verses we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting his disciples with the first line of our spiritual eye chart. And much like the first line of the Snell and I chart, the instructions of the Lord Jesus here are so plain, they're so obvious to our spiritual eyes that I must insist that the person who, who looks at this and, and rejects it, the person who sees the great commission of Jesus and thinks, yeah, that's not for me, well, they're more than likely suffering from spiritual blindness. They're not able to actually see how this applies to their life. And so because it is so plain, because it is so obvious, then they must be spiritually blind. I would also insist that the vision of every Christian fellowship ought to be firmly grounded upon these instructions. This should be the basis for the vision and the mission of every single Christian church. And while I can't speak for every church around the world, what I can tell you is that the vision of this church stems from this great commission, which we find here in these verses. Therefore, we would do well to check the sharpness of our spiritual sights by making sure that we are personally able to see how the great commission of Jesus applies to our own lives. With this as our goal, if you would look with me again there in the middle of verse 18, there again the Lord Jesus declares, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now I want to stop right there because I, I want to take a moment to recognize that the Christian who actually has 20-20 vision, spiritually speaking, well this Christian is able to see that the Lord Jesus is the one who has all authority. If you have 20-20 vision and you're able to see clearly the meaning of the Great Commission, then you have to recognize that the Lord Jesus is the one who has all authority. He has all authority all of the time and in every place. If there's an area of your life that you think, well, I have authority here. I'm the one who can call the shots over there. Then there's some blurriness happening in your spiritual eyes. There's some fuzziness happening in your thinking because Jesus Christ has all authority everywhere and all the time. For the sake of clarity, that word authority refers to the, the power of him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. Authority refers to the power of him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. In light of the meaning of this word, I would encourage every one of us to, to search our own hearts for a moment and, and to do this by asking, do I submit my life to the authority of the Lord Jesus? It is my primary desire to obey his commands and to accomplish his will. If not then you are failing to see that he has the ultimate authority. We should be asking ourselves right now, am I truly a servant who is fully submitted to our Savior, or am I still living like some autonomous sinner who thinks that I get to call some shots here and I get to have my way? Am I still living my life under the illusion and even the delusion that I am autonomous? free to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it? 
Because if so, then you're failing to recognize the first point that Jesus is making, which is all authority has been given to him everywhere and all the time. In order to further grasp the sort of authority that the Lord Jesus ought to have in our lives, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There he asks his audience, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Christian, soak that in for a second. If you've become a born-again believer, you are no longer your own. You were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we would do well to recognize his authority in our lives. And what this means is that he has authority over our time. He has ultimate authority over our talents. He has ultimate authority over our treasure. So then the question that we ought to ask ourselves is this. Am I a Christian who is truly submitting my time to the authority of Jesus? We should also ask, am I a Christian who is actually using my talents for his glory, or am I still using them for my own glory? We should search our own hearts and ask, am I using my treasure to support the work of his ministry? Am I taking the money that he's allowed me to acquire and use it to further his work here within our fellowship of faith? Am I truly submitting my time and my talent and my treasure to the Lord? Please trust me when I tell you that the Christian who truly believes that the Lord Jesus has the ultimate authority over our lives will begin to actually have a passion to worship him. And we will worship him by humbly committing our time and our talents and our treasure into his hands for his glory. What this also means is that we'll want to be here. We'll we'll want to be with our church family to to sing the praises of our Savior as soon as the worship team takes the stage because all authority is his. Consider this, you know, just in a secular sense that uh, the people who have authority in your life, you you seek to please. For example, uh, you, you recognize that your boss has the ultimate authority over you at work. And if they want you at work at a certain time, then you seek to submit to that authority by showing up to work on time. Do we attribute this sort of authority to the Lord Jesus in our lives? Do we actually look at the Lord Jesus and think, well, he's the boss. He's the one who has authority, and therefore I should be where he wants me to be when he wants me to be there and doing the things that he wants me to be doing. Or are we just still living our lives like we get to call the shots? If you really recognize the Lord Jesus as the ultimate authority, then you'll want to take every talent that you have, recognizing that he's the one that gave you the talents, and you'll want to use that talent to glorify our God by, by helping uh, to you know 
to accomplish the, the, the work that he has for us to do here in this wonderful place of worship. And, and we'll gladly give of our finances and, and our resources in order to, to cover you know, the monthly costs of keeping the doors open and, and keep the electricity flowing and, and keep the staff working and keep the tracks you know, coming and, and to do all the work that he has for us to do here. This will be a thrill for us if we really think that he has ultimate authority if we really think that he's the boss, if we really really live our lives in submission to him, these things will be a joy for us. Not only that, but the believer who is living in submission to the Lord's authority will also want to spend time engaging in the discipleship process. In order to prove my point, if you would look with me again, let's look at Matthew chapter 28. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 19. Here Jesus declares, Go therefore... And make disciples of all the nations. Now, it's important for us to understand that the Lord Jesus was presenting this command to all of his disciples that he had at that point in time. And the, and the reason why I point this out is because there are so many who, who claim to be Christians, and yet they aren't actively engaged in the discipleship process, and for whatever reason, maybe they think that they can opt out, or, or maybe they think this isn't a part of their own personal discipleship program. Well, whatever the case, whatever the reason, there are some who say, well, I'm a Christian, but they couldn't actually say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. In order to better grasp what I mean by this, it's important to understand that the discipleship process, well, it's based in the word disciple. And, and listen, a disciple is a person who follows the precepts and instructions of a teacher. You see, it's real easy to say I'm a Christian because the meaning of this word is kind of lost. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, I was, I'm an American. I'm a Christian. Same thing. That's how it's kind of used here in this country is that, you know, I'm American. I, I, I vote, vote Republican. You know, I, I you know, eat at uh, Applebee's and, uh, and I'm a Christian. You know, kind of how it's it's kind of how to how it's treated you know and 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 so if you ask somebody are you a disciple of jesus christ in order to say yes to this they have to be able to say that they're following the precepts and the instructions of the lord jesus christ and with that being the case uh, we should consider what are his instructions what 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 are his marching orders and here in verse 20 Part of his marching orders in, includes the, the, the command to make disciples by teaching these disciples to observe all things that he has commanded. In other words, in order to be a disciple, we're not only commanded to accept the precepts and the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in order to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, we're commanded to then teach others to follow these things. Christian, listen, the believer who is living in submission to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is able to see that we've been commissioned to go and teach others how to follow Jesus. In light of this, I must ask, how can we disciple others unless we ourselves have been discipled? And knowing that every Christian has been called to accomplish the Great Commission, we, we encourage every believer then to, to spend time getting discipled so that you can become a disciple who is 
making disciples. With this as the goal, I encourage every Christian here at Calvary South Austin to spend time in our small group ministries where discipleship relationships can be established. And for the sake of clarity, I'm referring to our small group ministries, which includes Max Men's Ministry. It includes our Eve 31 Women's Ministry. Of course, we have our One Singles Ministry. We have our D8 Couples Ministry and also the One Step Addiction Ministry. These, these are some ministries that you can plug into and begin to build relationships with other Christians here in this church, with the hopes that these relationships that you develop will slowly but surely become discipleship relationships where mature Christians are coming alongside of newer believers and and helping them to grow in the Lord. Not only that, but we also encourage every Christian to become a disciple by serving in some capacity. Listen, as, as you step up to serve in a ministry... Uh, It's within those ministries that the leaders of the ministries then take the time to provide the servants of those ministries with more discipleship. And as leaders are discipling those who are serving in those ministries, uh, as they provide them with more discipleship, they're helping you to accomplish the Great Commission by becoming equipped so that you can also become a leader who is teaching others. I would also point out that the commission to make disciples, it also comes with the implication of evangelism. In order to prove my point, if you would look with me again there at verse 19, here again the Lord Jesus declares, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now as we consider this command to go and make disciples with the idea that after you lead someone to become a disciple, then you baptize them. The implication here is based on the idea that we're actually leading unbelievers into a faith-based relationship with the triune God who has revealed himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then once an unbeliever has placed their faith in the finished work of the cross... Uh, then we've been called to then go and baptize them, and, 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 and then moving on, we teach them how to become disciple-makers. And so the implication of the Great Commission here is, is, is based on this idea that we go, we, we share the gospel with an unbeliever, we lead them to faith in, in our triune God, focusing on the finished work of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And once they place their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we invite them to our baptism. They get baptized, and all along the way, we're teaching them to observe everything that the Lord Jesus has instructed us with. This is what we do if we truly believe that Jesus has all authority in our lives. If Jesus truly has all authority over you, then this is a huge part of your life. To be a disciple and to go make disciples, including evangelism. Based on that, I would ask then, just, just, you know, just to engage in a little spiritual eye chart test. When was the last time you shared the gospel message with an unbeliever? 
When was the last time you actually stopped and gave the gospel to an unbeliever? Now, it's possible that you're a Christian who's constantly sharing your faith with others, and I think that's awesome. If so, I encourage you, continue planting the seeds of faith. Listen, the good news is that their conversion is not our requirement. And I know there's a lot of evangelistic programs out there that, that drive you to the point of decision and you know your success is based on how many converts you end up, you know, notches in the belt and all this kind of business. I don't buy into that at all. Your success as an evangelist is to plant and water seeds. God's the one who gives the increase. Conversion is his responsibility. And that's between him and the unbeliever. Our job is to plant and to water seeds. It is that simple. And so how do I gauge the success of the Christian in their evangelistic endeavors? Well, the question is, did they go plant and did they go water? If so, success. Complete success when we plant and water and then let God give the increase. And so I ask again, when was the last time you shared the gospel message with an unbeliever? When was the last time you planted seeds of the gospel into the hearts of an unbeliever? When's the last time you watered those seeds that maybe somebody else planted? Sadly, the majority of church-going Protestants don't share their faith at all. As a matter of fact, according to one survey, this survey polled 2,500 born-again believers, and amongst this group of 2,500 born-again believers... 57% of them admitted that they don't ever share the gospel with an unbeliever. That's staggering. 57% of those polled said, nope, I don't ever share my faith. Not only that, but a meager 29% of those polled said that they had shared their faith more than twice over the course of six months. They had actually shared their faith twice or maybe a few times more over the course of six months. That's staggering to me. If I don't see an opportunity to share my faith, you know, after a couple of days, I'm just kind of like, okay, Lord, you know, bring someone to me. Can't wait to share my faith with somebody. I can't wait to talk to an unbeliever about Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because he's the one with all authority. He's the one who can save people. He's the solution for sin. Why wouldn't I want to give that good news to as many people as will stop and listen? But as we consider these numbers, that 57% of those polled said, nope, don't ever share my faith. And 29, only 29% had actually shared their faith twice you know, over the course of six months. I can't help but to consider something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9. If, if you would, hold your place here in Matthew 28. I'd like you to turn with me back to Matthew chapter 9. It's in Matthew 9 that we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually revealing his heart for those who are lost. And as we consider the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope that this would also be the heart of this church as we consider what is my vision for this church and what is the vision that the Lord has given me, I think that we have a pretty good grasp on it and a pretty good idea about it here in Matthew chapter 9. If you would look with me beginning at verse 36, because here Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep 
having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Christian, listen, the world is filled with lost people. How do I know this? Because there are no traffic jams on Sunday morning. The easiest time to drive is Sunday morning. And would it be to God that we would have major traffic jams on Sunday morning? And anytime I show up to church and I see empty chairs, I'm just kind of like, oh, I wish we were doing a better job reaching the lost. There shouldn't be one empty chair in this building. The world is filled with lost sheep who are wandering around without a shepherd and 57% of us aren't willing to go tell them who the good shepherd is. For whatever reason, we're too embarrassed, we're ill-equipped, don't have any time for it. Whatever the reason. We know the good shepherd. And we see the lost sheep wandering around. And listen, it's only a matter of time until they're consumed by the ravenous wolf. Why aren't our hearts filled with the compassion of Christ? The compassion that we see here when when his heart was moved for them, his heart broke for them, and he encouraged his disciples, pray, pray that the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers... The laborers are few. If we don't lead these lost sheep into the fold of our good shepherd Jesus, who will? Who will? We have to be praying for more laborers. And not only should we, we, we be praying for more laborers, but, but we should be ready to be the answer to those prayers. Because listen, if we would simply pray for more laborers, you better believe that the Lord Jesus then is going to turn around and say, okay, now that you've prayed, let's go. Let's go make disciples. Let's become those believers who are actively engaging in evangelistic endeavors because this is the vision that the Lord has given me for this church. We want to provide you with all the discipleship that you need so that we can together accomplish this calling. Therefore, we provide intermittent apologetic courses like the one that's coming up. The recordings of of previous apologetic classes are found online. You can go look that up. We've got apologetic books, uh, books in our bookstore. We want to help you to be able to give a reasonable answer regarding your faith. So that when you go out and share your faith and somebody says, well, what about this or what about that? You're ready to give them an answer. But I would also argue, don't let the lack of an answer stop you from going. Because I'll tell you, when I first became a born-again believer, I just went out. I just started sharing my faith. And that's how I learned how to answer tough questions. I would go out and I'd share my faith and somebody would say, well, what about this? And I would say, I don't know. What about that? 
And so I'd go find out about that. And gave me an opportunity to say, well, give me your number. Hit me up on MySpace. That was back then. And I'd go do my research, and I'd reconnect with the person and say, well, here's what I found. Next thing you know, I had one more piece of the armor tucked away, ready for the next time that question got brought up. And listen, in reality, there's really only a small handful of questions that people actually ask. It doesn't take much to get equipped. It just takes us being committed and recognizing that Jesus has all authority in our lives and he's calling us to go and lead the lost to him. We also offer a monthly outreach opportunity. You know, once a month, you can join us right here and go out on the streets and team up with somebody who knows how to share their faith, knows how to answer the tough questions, and you get to sit there as a prayer partner and just listen and be a part of it. Sadly, there are many who claim the name of Christ but they'd rather just make excuses for why they personally don't need to spend their time accomplishing the Great Commission. Remember, 57% of those polled were quick to admit that they don't spend any of their time sharing the gospel with unbelievers. And, and a lot of times, the, the people who don't have in their mind some reason for why that's not expected of them. Well, that's, that's for those who have the gift of evangelism. Listen, I don't know what the gift of evangelism even is. I just know that we've been called to go and evangelize. True, some are more gifted at it than others, but that doesn't mean some of us are off the hook because, you know, we might stumble over our words. Go read the story of Moses. As we consider the arguments of those churchgoers who refuse to lead the lost to Jesus, I would remind you of something that Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 11. There he declares, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. If I were to take an informal survey here tonight and say, Who here wants to be wise? Who wants to be a wise believer? I'm sure that we would all raise our hands and say, oh yeah, I do. And yet Solomon, the wisest king to ever live, apart from the Lord Jesus, is here telling us that he who wins souls is wise. Conversely, the churchgoer who makes excuses for why they don't feel like they should have to share their faith with unbelievers, that they're basically like a legally blind person at the optometrist who's struggling to read the largest letter on the first line of the eye chart, but then, but then insisting that the doctor's all wrong about his diagnosis, that they're blind. Oh, no, doc, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not blind. I just can't see the big letter there on the chart. It's ridiculous to say, you know, hey, I can't read the first letter on the first line, but I'm not legally blind. Please give me a driver's license. And yet as ridiculous as that sounds, this is exactly what the Christian is doing when, when, when they say, I, I'm a Christian. 
but I don't need to go share my faith. I know that's the Great Commission. I know that's the, 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 the biggest primary purpose of, of, of why Jesus still leaves the church here. And, and I realize that this is a Great Commission that he's given to every disciple. And I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't apply to me. It's ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. It's coming from the place of a person who is blind and saying, I can see. Sadly, the world is filled with with even pastors who endorse this sort of spiritual blindness by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Evangelism is for the crazy few that are willing to go out and do it. Not true. The Great Commission was given to every Christian. It's for this reason why I, as a pastor, am committed to speaking the things which have been revealed within the pages of Holy Scripture. I'm not here to make excuses. I'm not here to, to present you with loopholes to get out of you know, what, what the Scriptures tell us. And No, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. If you have an issue with, with what I'm telling you, I mean, either show me biblically why I'm wrong, and then you can correct me and I'll accept that and we'll move on. I'll, I'll accept whatever the Bible has to say. And if that means I need to be corrected and challenged and, and change my mind, I'm totally willing to do that. Just show me. Show me biblically where I'm wrong. I'll change my, my point of view. I've got no problem with that. But if the Bible actually does say it and you've got an issue with it, then your issue is not with me. Because I didn't write it. It's the Word of God. This is His great commission. This is His instruction for us. And all I can do as the pastor of this church is be faithful to teach it for what it says. That's why I teach the Great Commission as I do. This is the Great Commission that the Lord Jesus has given to every Christian. And in order to better understand this commission that that we've been given, we should take a, a moment to consider the example that our Savior revealed through the mission of his incarnation. If you want to really get a grasp and and an idea of what the Great Commission should kind of look like in our own lives, then then let's look at the example of Jesus, which is found in Philippians chapter 2. If you would turn with me to Philippians 2, where we find Paul. He's presenting us with kind of a a brief summary, a, 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 a description of the sacrificial humility that led the Lord Jesus to to set aside his glory so that he could accomplish the mission of our redemption. This mission includes his his physical incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. All of this necessary for our redemption. And we must not fail to notice here that Paul here is expecting every Christian to share the same point of view, the same focus that Jesus had, which led him to accomplish that mission. As a matter of fact, look with me there at Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5. Here Paul declares, Let this mind be in you. Just soak that in for a second. He's about to tell us something that should be true of the way that we look at the world and the way that we think about our own lives. He's saying, let this mind be in you. Focus your mind on this so that it might be reflected in the way that you live. 
let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let this mind be in you. No reputation, bond servant. That's what he's telling us here. In the same way that Jesus Christ set aside his glory and came with zero reputation, even becoming a bondservant of his own creation, we're being called as Christians now to follow in these footsteps. Listen, it was heartfelt humility that led the deity of the Lord Jesus to set aside his glory so that he could come and accomplish this mission which would result in our salvation. This mission, which begins with that incarnation, which leads up to his crucifixion, followed by his resurrection, all of this for our redemption was based on this humility, this setting aside of glory, this desire to serve with sacrificial love. This was the focus, the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is Paul here inviting us to consider the, 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 the humility and the, and the love of the Lord that, that he was demonstrating during, during the days of his earthly ministry, but he's also encouraging us to make sure that we're becoming believers who have the mind of Christ. If you want to know the vision of this church, then just grasp the mind of Christ. See, Paul here wants every Christian to share the same spiritual vision that the Lord Jesus had when he decided to offer himself a sacrifice for our sins. And in light of the Lord's example, it's my prayer that we will all become believers who have the mind of Christ. Then as we embrace the mind of Christ, he'll give us the spiritual vision that we need so that we can clearly see how we ought to be serving him with our time and our talent and our treasure. He'll help us to see how we ought to be serving him according to the Great Commission. And not only that, but the Christian who has the mind of Christ uh, will also begin to walk in the humility of our Savior. We'll no longer feel the need to have a reputation. We'll, we'll no longer uh, feel that need to, to build a name for ourselves or to leave some legacy behind that's, that's beyond what the Lord is calling us to, to leave. We'll no longer feel like you know that we've got to somehow uh, you know have some glory for ourselves. We'll no longer need those things, but instead we'll walk in the humility of our Savior, and we will lay down our lives for His glory. Then the Lord will help us to see how how we can truly make an impact on this world, not for our name, but for the name of Jesus and for the glory of God the Father. Conversely, the Christian who fails to embrace the mind of Christ, well, I can guarantee you this. 
they're going to begin to backslide. The Christian who fails to embrace the mind of Christ will begin to backslide as they make their way back to the spiritual blindness of the carnal mind. Now, in order to further explain what I mean by this, I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you make your way to 2 Peter 1, I want to take a moment to remind you that the born-again believer actually has two natures. And these two natures include the fallen flesh, our, our, our sinful nature, which is bent on sin. And we also have a spiritual nature, which always desires the things of the Lord. So we have these two natures, the flesh and the spirit. And, and, and the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. And while it's true that the spirit is always willing to walk in obedience, it's also true that the flesh is very, very weak and constantly beckoning us back into a life of sin. This is the daily battle that we constantly face, which is why Paul tells us to walk in the Spirit so that we, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And yet we have to recognize that every single day this battle continues. Within the, the, the body of the believer, there's the, 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 the fallen nature fighting for, for its own way, and then there's the Spirit wanting to walk with the Lord. for this reason that Peter here encourages every Christian to make sure that we're constantly adding to our faith so that we can continue to see through the eyes of the Lord Jesus and to have the mind of Christ. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me here at 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 5 here. Peter encourages his audience to give all diligence, do everything that you can by adding to our faith virtue. You see, it doesn't stop with just saving faith. We get saved by placing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point in time, there are some who say, okay, I've got my fire insurance. Now I'm going to just go back to doing whatever I want to do. And that's a path that leads you back into the blindness of our fallen nature, which is why Peter here is saying, no, no, no. It, it, salvation begins with faith. This is the point in time when we receive the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now there's growing to do. There's sanctification. And we engage in the sanctification of saving faith by adding to our faith virtue. And then we add to virtue, what? Knowledge. And then to knowledge, what? Self-control. And then we add to self-control perseverance and then to perseverance we add godliness and then to godliness we add brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love and then verse 8 if these things are yours and abound you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ but then notice in verse 9 he who lacks these things is short sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. How sad. It's possible for a Christian who has come to saving faith to begin slipping back into sin so that they become short-sighted 
even to the point of blindness. It's possible for the born-again believer to walk in the flesh and fulfill the lusts of the flesh and slip back into a life of spiritual blindness. All we have to do is stop walking according to the mind of Christ and, and start following after the autonomous appetites that come from our carnal cravings. Please trust me when I tell you that the Christian who decides to spend their time entertaining their depraved desires will soon find themselves forgetting all about the forgiveness that they've received. And they'll forget all about the great commission that we've been given. That will no longer be important for them. No, instead, what's important for them is all of their carnal cravings and depraved desires. With that being the case, Peter here encourages us to make sure that we're becoming those believers who are constantly adding to our faith. We need to become those believers who are constantly making sure that we are walking according to the mind of Christ. Let's consider how he puts it here in 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll pick up at verse 10. Here, Peter goes on to declare, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. Remember, he said, be diligent to add to your faith. And now he's saying, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, listen, it's all too common to watch Christians come in for a season, fired up about the Lord. You know, the Lord spoke to them about something or, or, or they came to the end of themselves and, and all of a sudden it was just kind of like, I, I, I got to get right. I got I to gotta walk with the Lord. And, and there's this instant zeal and, and, and this desire. And it's all too common to watch those Christians get challenged along the way, you know, find themselves facing some discipleship, hearing some things they didn't like to hear, being challenged in a way that they weren't willing to be challenged. And next thing you know, they start looking back. They start becoming short-sighted, even to blindness. And it breaks my heart every time I, I see Christians coming in with that zeal and thinking that, you know, this is the time that they're going to get it right and they're going to stop going back to the world. And, and yet... Next thing you know, so many of them slip right back into the blindness of sin. And knowing how easy it is for us to, to, to slide backwards and to slip back into sin, Peter here encourages us, be even more diligent. Please understand, if you don't get anything else out of this study tonight, please trust me when I tell you that we are all just a few decisions away from backsliding. I mean, that is a reality. And I know this because I've seen it happen time and time and time again. We are all just a few decisions away from backsliding. for this reason that, that Peter encourages us to be diligent disciples who are constantly adding to our faith. Don't come to a place in your Christian life where you think, well, I've plateaued. I, I'm, at, you know, I'm, I'm at the place where I need to be. You know, I've arrived. No more growing from here. No, according to Peter, there's always room for more growth. 
There's always more time to be discipled and, and, and to be a discipler. There's always greater opportunities to go out and share your faith and, and to lead others to, to Christ. Don't, don't come to a place where you can say, okay, I can rest on my laurels now. I've experienced a few victories, and, and now I, I'm over this whole you know, carnal craving that I used to struggle with. It'll never haunt me again. Yes, it will. It's in your flesh. It's part of your, uh, your fallen nature. Listen, before I came to Christ... I can't even tell you how many years I spent on drugs and alcohol. I can't tell you. It would be easier to count the sober moments of my young adult life than it would be to to, to count how many times I was drunk and high. And I know that desire is still there. You know, going out and riding my mountain bike, you know, I, I, I come close to uh, some of the Frisbee golf courses here in town. And we all know that Frisbee golf is just... a way to get outdoors and smoke pot. Pastor buddy of mine who Frisbee golfs asked me, hey, you want to go play some Frisbee golf? And I said, no, I quit smoking pot years ago. And, and cruising by some of these parks, I smell it. You, you catch the wind, and it's just kind of like, oh, man, I know what that is. It's either a dead skunk or someone smoking pot. And I know that carnal side of me is just kind of like, oh, man, remember the good old days. And I, you know, that, those were not good old days. That, that is a false memory. They were very bad old days. But my flesh says, oh, wouldn't that be nice? And my spirit says, no, that is the way to blindness. That is the way of death. And I can tell you right now that we are all but a few decisions away from going right back into the world which is one reason why I don't play Frisbee golf. The second reason is because it's a silly game. And when somebody says, hey, let's go to the bar, I don't have any business being in a bar. And sometimes I'll go to a restaurant and they'll be like, you know, it's an hour away for a table, but we can sit you at the bar right now. I say, I'll be happy to wait an hour. Because I'm not going to go sit at a bar. Because I know that I'm a few decisions away from backsliding. I take what Peter is saying seriously. And I encourage you to do the same. I recognize that we are all very weak. And our carnal cravings are all very powerful. And our spirit is willing, but our flesh will constantly lead us back to blindness. Therefore, I encourage you to make 
your call and your election sure. And to do this by continuing to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with this as our, our goal, I just want to conclude this study by directing every Christian disciple here tonight to embrace the vision and the mission of this church. I encourage you, become a Christian who is truly reaching up by first recognizing the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's reach up together. Let's be here when the worship team starts playing so that we can worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. Let's reach up by, by giving him everything, our time and our talent and our treasure. Let's, let's commit ourselves to him by, by living in submission to him, recognizing that he is the one with all authority over us. We were bought at a price. We are his servants. And as we reach up, then let's begin to reach in by engaging in our small group ministries. I, I would encourage you, make the church calendar your calendar. If you're failing to put the church calendar onto your personal calendar, then you're going to double book yourself. You're going you're to find that you don't have time to go to this ministry or that ministry because you, you committed yourself to all these other things because you didn't line up your calendar with the church calendar. Don't do that. Put the church calendar on your calendar. Be a part of what's going on here at your church so that you can reach in and be a disciple and, and then be raised up to begin making disciples. And finally, I encourage you to reach out. Don't be part of that 57% who never shares their faith. Let's set aside our own glory. Let's, let's forget about our reputation. Let's, let's quit worrying about whether people are going to like us or not like us or whether they're going to friend us or, 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 or smash the like button on our social media, whatevers. And who cares about all of that? The question is, do we have a compassion for the lost which would lead us to actually reach out and share the gospel message with unbelievers? If not, why not? Would it be to God that we would have the mind of Christ so that we would have the compassion that he had and has for every unbeliever. Then as we reach up and reach in and reach out, as we commit ourselves to this mission, we can then take courage in the fact that those who do these things will never stumble. This is my hope for every one of us, that we would be Christians who will never stumble. And so I encourage you to embrace the vision that the Lord has given me for this fellowship of faith and to do that by embracing and accepting the call to go and make disciples. Let's pray.